1986, a woman named Gloria Killian was convicted and sentenced to 32 years in prison for her role in a robbery and murder that happened just outside of Sacramento, California. From the beginning, Gloria Killian maintained her innocence. It was the testimony of an eyewitness that was supposedly an alleged accomplice that had actually sealed her conviction. But from the start, she disputed this evidence, and in fact, she continued for the course of over 16 years to proclaim that she was innocent and that she had nothing to do with the robbery or murder that had sent her to prison. And 16 years later, the court system finally agreed with Gloria Killian. In March of 2002, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco overturned Killian's conviction, stating that it was based on the false testimony of a convicted felon who had testified just for the sake of getting a lighter sentence. In other words, the star testimony that had convicted Killian was actually the testimony of someone who is testifying solely for the sake of getting a lighter sentence. It was a false witness. And so after approximately 17 years in in prison, Gloria Killian was released and set free, the victim of what the court would call a wrongful conviction. It's hard to imagine how you would feel in that circumstance, knowing that you've been in prison for nearly 17 years for a crime that you did not commit. I would imagine that for most of us, the emotions would run deep. And for Gloria Killian, that was certainly the case. As evidenced by a quote she gave after a release, she said this, They destroyed my entire life. They took everything I had, and they smashed it into a million pieces just because they could. And honestly, who could blame her for feeling that way? Who could blame her? If you were sentenced for a crime that you did not commit... Who amongst us would not feel that same way, that our lives have been destroyed by the court system? And of course, if you follow the news, you probably know that Gloria Killian is not the only one who's faced this situation. In fact, a recent study came out in 2012 that found from 1989 to 2012, there have been roughly 2,000 criminals who've later been exonerated of serious crimes. In other words, the court found that they were wrongfully convicted. This has happened over 2,000 times from 1989 to 2012. And I'm sure that many of those 2,000-plus people would feel the same way that Gloria Killian did. Anger, bitterness, resentment, a hatred for the system that put them in jail. But remarkably, as I studied cases like this week, I found that there were quite a few people who actually expressed that they have no bitterness and that they've decided not to hold it against the people who threw them in prison, which I think is remarkable. I would not feel that way. That said... Of all, the course, of all the cases I could find, I could not find one case where the person who'd been exonerated of a crime, of something that they did not actually commit, actually said, you know what? Although I was wrong, wrongfully convicted of this crime, it was a good thing. Could not find one example of that. Now, in those 2,000 cases, there may be someone who said, yeah, this is a good thing that I was imprisoned, but I doubt it. Right? Because who would say that? Who would say, the fact that I'm in prison for a crime I did not commit is actually a good thing? No one says that. Except for maybe the man that we're about to study today. And that to me is what makes this passage so strange and yet so powerful. Because the Apostle Paul, as he's thrown in prison, in the end claims that this is for his good and it's for the good of the kingdom. He looks at his false imprisonment as something that is healthy and something that he rejoices in. And that is amazing. And I suspect that as we dive into this, not only will it challenge our way of thinking, it will challenge our priorities. Because the only way you can explain what happens here in Philippians 1 is that Paul had a radically different set of priorities than most of us. So let's read Philippians 1. Let's read the same passage that Chris read just a minute ago. 
And as we read, let me remind you as always, this is the word of God. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I think verse 12 is an incredible verse in the Bible. Let me read it to you one more time. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In verse 12, he talks about what has happened to him. This what has happened is almost certainly a reference to his imprisonment. And as we might point out, his imprisonment was an unjust imprisonment. As Paul has said, he has been imprisoned, or excuse me, Paul has said that what has happened to him is imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. Now, if you go back and you read Acts 21 through 28, where Paul is arrested, you'll find out that he was thrown in prison. And he was thrown in prison for seemingly no reason. They can't even find a charge to charge him with. And so Paul is falsely imprisoned, and yet here in verse 12, he says that what has happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. So he is trying to encourage them. That's strange, right? That Paul is the one who is falsely imprisoned. Paul is the one who's been thrown in for prison for a reason that they can't even come up with, and yet he is the one encouraging the Philippians. You would expect that it would be vice versa. Now, no doubt the Philippians encouraged him along the way, but yet here he is in prison and he is the one encouraging them. He is exhorting them. It is a good thing that I've been imprisoned. And the reason it is good is because the gospel has been advanced. Listen, this is the type of verse that we can read and we can easily, because we're familiar with the Bible or because we read verses like this, we can miss the revolutionary nature of what's happening here. Right? We can hear Paul saying, oh yeah, it's good for me that I was imprisoned. It's good because the gospel advanced, and we can kind of skim over it. But the reality is what he's saying here is completely radical. Let us not lose sight of the fact that this statement makes no sense. Can you think of a situation where you would say to yourself, oh yes, my imprisonment, my false imprisonment is good? I can't. And yet that is what Paul is getting at here. He says in verse 12, the reason why it is good is because it has served to advance the gospel. And this is why I think this statement is so incredible, because I think it indicates to us that for Paul, the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ was more important than his own freedom. The fact that people would hear about Jesus, the fact that more people would come to embrace that Jesus really is a great Savior and that we are sinners was more important to Paul than any of his own desires. And while in theory, we may agree with such a thing, while we may say, oh yeah, of course I would be willing to lose my freedom for the sake of Christ, let us keep in mind that Paul is not dealing with a hypothetical situation here. He is not saying, oh yeah, I think I'd be willing to lose my freedom for Christ. No, he is actually talking about the fact that he has been wrongfully imprisoned, and yet he is rejoicing because the gospel is advancing. That seems radical to me. And yet for Paul, this seems like everyday life. Seems like everyday life. He's falsely imprisoned. 
They can't even come up with a charge with which to charge him with. And yet he's rejoicing because the gospel's advancing. Now, it might be worth asking this question. How in the world could the gospel advance if Paul's imprisoned? Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. After all, if you were trying to stop the spread of the gospel during Paul's era, it would seem like one of the best things you could do is throw arguably the greatest evangelist of all time into prison. Right? If I were in Paul's era and I was trying to stop the spread of the gospel, my first idea would be let's throw Paul in prison. Right? After all, this guy, everywhere he goes, churches are springing up. People are coming to Christ. I would think that the first thing you would want to do is throw him in prison. And yet, oddly enough, Paul doesn't just say, the gospel advanced in spite of my imprisonment. Rather, he says, the gospel advanced because of my imprisonment. That is odd. That is odd. You throw the best evangelist, arguably of all time, in prison, and yet the gospel advances. In fact, not only does it advance slowly, it explodes, right? This is strange. How is that even possible? Verses 13 and 14, Paul starts to give some reasons as to how him being thrown in prison actually served to spread the gospel. Reason number one, non-believers are hearing about the gospel. Verse 13, verse 13 says this, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard here is likely a reference to the Praetorian guard, the emperor's elite group of troops that were stationed in Rome. At times, this group of men could soar to about 9,000 in number. And politically speaking, they were powerful. In fact, oftentimes, the Praetorian Guard might even have a role in selecting leaders over the Roman Empire. This was a powerful group of people. And given what we read in the book of Acts as we read about the rest of Paul, it's likely that one of these members of the Imperial Guard was always chained to Paul. It would probably rotate on about a four to six hour basis. Talk about your ultimate can't get away from someone situation, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a plane and you've seen that baby coming down the aisle and it's screaming like nails on a chalkboard and you're thinking, please don't sit next to me. Please don't sit next to me. And then that baby sits next to you and you're like, I'm next to this baby for four hours. I can't do anything about it. You'd have to imagine that the prison guard must have felt the same way about Paul, right? Oh man, we're with Paul today. Four to six hours chained next to Paul you know he's going to talk about Jesus. You know he's going to share the gospel. And it would appear that is exactly what happened, right? That's exactly what happened. It tells us that the gospel advanced so that all in the imperial guard and many others are hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. Paul is chained to them and he is sharing the gospel. And while it's unlikely that all 9,000 would have been chained to him at one time, it's obvious that the word is spreading. Right Over the course of his imprisonment, probably not every person at one time or another was chained to him. But every person seemingly heard about Christ. They heard about that guy who was in prison for Christ. There's no charge they can come up with for charging him with. And so what Paul tells them is, listen, I'm in prison for Christ. And word is spreading about him. Word is continuing to advance, not just to the imperial guard, but to all the rest that Paul is in prison for Christ. This is pretty amazing. Can you imagine... For years, the church must have been praying, God somehow helped the gospel go to those who are powerful in Roman society. They must have been praying for years that some way the gospel would be able to penetrate to the upper levels of Roman society, to those in power. And now because they take Paul in prison, that's exactly what happens. This is amazing. 
right, that the gospel would advance because of the imprisonment of Paul. And given what we read later on in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, give greetings to all the believers, especially to those of Caesar's household, it seems likely that that's a reference maybe to some of these guards or some of these other people in positions of power in the Roman Empire. In other words, it's not just that he's sharing with people, it's that people are embracing the message. And surely there is a lesson in us for that. Sometimes we are probably too quick to give ourselves excuses for not sharing the gospel, for not being evangelistic, which is just another word of saying, being intentional about reaching out and telling others about Christ. And we say things like, well, in my job, it just wouldn't be prudent for me to share the gospel. Or I just don't have occasions where I'm around non-believers. I just don't have opportunities to share the gospel. Or in my life situation, it's just undoable that I would be able to regularly participate in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. But I think that Paul's example here should be an encouragement to us. Even when he's in prison, he sees it as a chance to advance the gospel. In fact, not only does he see it as a chance, he sees it as an opportunity to take the gospel to new people and to new areas. So whatever your life situation is, whatever your job, whatever neighborhood you live in, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, let me say this, maybe... Maybe, just maybe, God has placed you in that situation so that the gospel can grow there. Maybe your situation is not actually a hindrance. Instead, maybe it's an opportunity to spread the gospel to places that desperately need it. I'd have to imagine that when Paul was thrown in prison, some saw that as a hindrance to the gospel. But instead, we read in Philippians, this was actually an opportunity for the gospel to advance to new places. That's not the only way that the gospel spreads. It also spreads because the church is strengthened. Look at verse 14. Something else is happening. It's not just that Paul's sharing. Something else is happening. Verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment has another strange effect. And that strange effect is that because of his imprisonment, more believers are being encouraged and emboldened to share the gospel. Now, the reason I say that's strange is because on the surface, again, this doesn't make perfect sense, right? If your buddy is thrown into prison because he's talking about Jesus, you would think that maybe you would be less likely to talk about Jesus. That's not what happens here. And maybe if we thought about it more, we'd realize that kind of actually makes sense. So I've been on a mission trip twice to Taiwan. Both times I took a group of about 15 or 20 students from our church in Texas. And I went because the student pastor there before me, a guy named Todd Blackhurst, had developed a lot of relationships in Taiwan. He'd been there five or six times previously with students. And he stayed on staff uh, when I came on as a student pastor. And so he was still at the church. And so it was only natural that because he built up all these relationships in Taiwan, that we would continue to take our students to, to Taiwan for these international mission trips. And so because Todd had all this experience, he was the one who led the trips. And he was always convinced, or he always thought, that he was going to do everything we could to, number one, share the gospel, and number, number two, to get an authentic Taiwanese experience. So I'm not sure how Todd determined what made up an authentic Taiwanese experience, but one of the things he decided is that to have an authentic Taiwanese experience, you needed to go to this foot massage place. All right, so... Um, I'm not sure how in the five or six years of the trips before I got there, this came to be a tradition, or I'm not sure that this is actually officially a Taiwanese experience. But for Todd, this was official. 
if you were going to go on the trip, you had to have a Taiwanese foot massage. Now, I probably need to clarify something here. Uh, to use the word foot massage in this situation, I think, does an injustice to the word massage, okay? Um, I think massage, I think relaxing, makes you feel better. Uh, that's not the case. I would call this foot torture or foot boot camp, okay? Um, these are the types of guys that when you walk into the place, you can d- tell their, their faces are lighting up because they're about to inflict pain on you. And um, they also, they have these charts as well, which I think they particularly enjoy. So if they're messing with your pinky and you like... Um, come to the point of being in pain, they're like, oh, they point to this chart and they're like, you've got relational problems. Like all these crazy things, right? So these are the type of people who love inflicting pain and then telling you why you're in so much pain. All right, so um, now I'd heard about these trips five or six times before Todd had been on this trip and every time this was a part of it. And I'd heard about these trips to the foot massage place and I decided before the trip, I will have nothing to do with this foolishness, all right? Now, a funny thing happened, though. We went and we took all of these students. And I, of course, being a leader, like, okay, you guys go first. We want you to go first. Of course, secretly, I'm like, I'm not going at all, right? Like, but go first. But a funny thing happened. As all of these high school students participated, and particularly these high school girls participated, and they survived, I thought to myself, you know what? I can do this. In fact, not only did I think I can do this, I thought if these high school girls can handle it, I must do this, right? If I'm going to have any level of respect with these students, I've got to go through with it, right? So I did. Now, um, I'm not going to lie to you. It's still torturous. And I'm fairly confident that the guy I got, especially the second year, was by far the most cruel of all foot massages of all time. He, every time I would cringe, he would smile. It was as if it was his joy in life, right? But that said... That said, the fact is, when I saw other people enduring something and going through something, I thought to myself, you know what? I can do it. I can do that. Now, hear me. I'm not at all comparing what Paul is going through here in Philippians 1 to a Taiwanese foot massage, okay? I'm not saying that they're similar at all. But the principle is still in place. And the principle is simply this. When we see others enduring something, when we see others who are able to go through something that may seem difficult, it often encourages us to do the same. And throughout the church, this has proven true time and time again. As people endure well, as people suffer well, as people go through trials and they continue in their faith in Christ, that oftentimes encourages other believers to do the same. And we see that happening here. As Paul suffers well, as Paul rejoices in his imprisonment, the other believers are strengthened and they think if Paul can do it, we can do it too. And so we see this amazing thing happen in Philippians chapter 1. They throw Paul in prison, at least in part, I would have to assume, because they think it will slow the spread of the gospel. And yet, the word continues to advance and spread. Non-believers here, the church is strengthened, and the word of God marches on. It's a shocking display of the power of God. It really is. But it's not a surprising one. Because this is what God does. This is how he works. Throughout the course of the history of the church, this is how God works. And I think it's because of a principle we find in 2 Timothy. So you can flip to 2 Timothy. It's just four books ahead. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're headed to. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9, says this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, 
as priest in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Get this last part. I love this part. But the word of God is not bound. Indeed, it is not. In fact, it seems to be one of the great paradoxes of all of history, that the more you try to suppress the word of God, the more it oftentimes flourishes. I could give you multiple examples. I'll give you a couple this morning. Consider the church in China. Despite repeated efforts by the government to curtail the growth of any sort of religion in China, the church has flourished. In fact, since 1950, the church in China has grown at a rate that is unparalleled in all of church history. Despite the fact that the government was seeking to stamp out all religious superstition, the church has taken off in unfathomable ways. The book Operation World, which, by the way, if you have a heart at all for the nations, or if you want to cultivate a heart for the nations, and you want to pray for them, I would submit to you the book Operation World is a great place to start. It's a list of every country and how you can pray for them, and it gives all kinds of facts that just help you to be more informed as you pray. And in the book Operation World, they estimate that in 1950, there were around 1.2 million members of the Protestant church in China. By 2000, that number had grown to 17 million, with this notable exception as well. It's also estimated that in addition to the 17 million known Christians, there were also 45 million members of the underground church in China. Of course, there's no exact way to estimate that because it's underground, right? But in 1950, 1.2 million. The government comes, they try to do everything they can to suppress the spread of Christianity. And then in 2000, this is just 2000, so who knows what's happened in the 13 years since. But in 2000, nearly 62 million, if I'm doing my math correctly off the top of my head, right? 1.262. That's incredible. As I've read elsewhere, the church in China has grown more in the last 60 years since it became a closed country since they decided that they would do things to oppose things like Christianity, has grown more in those 60 years than it has in all the years previous when it was open to the gospel. That doesn't make sense unless you believe that the word of God is powerful. That doesn't make sense unless you believe that God can do anything. That doesn't make sense unless you believe that the word of God is not chained. Same thing in Cambodia. Around 10,000 believers in Cambodia when the Khmer Rouge assumed control in 1975 Missionaries were forced to leave. Persecution of the church was brutal. 90% of Christians and all Christian leaders were martyred or exiled. And yet somehow, not only did the church survive, it grew. Today in Cambodia, there's nearly 40,000 believers in 750 churches. And stories like this have repeated themselves over and over and over again throughout the years. That's why some have said the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. It's why others have said the best growth strategy for churches is persecution. It's amazing. It doesn't make any sense unless you believe that this is true, that the word of God is not bound. It's not. Listen, it does not matter if you make government policies to try to stop the spread of the gospel. It does not matter if you throw the leader in jail, in this case, Paul. You cannot stop the spread of the gospel. If God wants the gospel to grow with a certain people at a certain time, there is nothing that will stop it. Praise God. There's nothing that will stop it. And let that be an encouragement to us. Let it be an encouragement to us. 
no matter what the culture says about Christianity in the days to come, no matter what laws they may even make against Christians, no matter how much they may push Christians to the side, let us never forget that the word of God is not bound, that there is nothing that can stop the spread of the gospel. If God wants the gospel to grow, it will. And in fact, you can make the argument that the best thing that could happen for Christians is that we would receive more persecution. Now, for the record, I'm, I'm not necessarily hoping that will happen, right, in my own selfishness, but if it did happen, that might be the best thing that could happen. And let us be encouraged also by the fact that sometimes seeming setbacks are God's means to advance the gospel. Right? You'd have to imagine that when they threw Paul in prison, everyone else in the church was thinking, this can't be good. I mean, this is the most gifted evangelist of all time. This is the leader of the church. This is the Apostle Paul. You'd have to imagine that when they saw their friend through in prison, that they were discouraged. And yet, not only was this not a setback, this was actually the means that God used to advance the gospel. And who knows how God might be working in similar ways in our lives. Maybe through the loss of a job, or maybe through a move that becomes necessary, or a move that doesn't work out or maybe an illness in the family, or maybe even a death of a loved one. Who knows that God might, by, God might be using that to spread the gospel. Let us not forget that God's ways are not our ways. And sometimes, seeming obstacles are actually opportunities for the gospel to advance. But let's be clear here. We're not saying that just because God is in control, everything will be easy. In fact, we even see that in this passage. In verse 14, Paul talks about this idea that many are talking and many are spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. But then in verses 15 through 17, we kind of have a reality check here. Verse 15 says this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So in verse 14, Paul says, listen, the gospel is spreading. But then in verses 15 through 17, he acknowledges not all are spreading it for the right reasons. Some are, no doubt. Some are doing it because they love the gospel. They love Paul. And Paul rejoices in that. But some are hoping to afflict Paul with the preaching of the gospel. It's a little bit unclear what's going on here. This seems like an odd strategy to me. I can't even imagine what that meeting must have been like. Where they're like, okay, how can we get Paul back? I know, let's preach the gospel. That will show him, right? Like, that doesn't seem to make any sense. So what is going on here? One thing I think we can say with certainty is that they are not preaching a false gospel. If you've read the rest of the New Testament, you know that Paul is not afraid to go after false teachers. Take, for example, the book of Galatians. Right? He is willing to go after false teachers. I don't think he's rejoicing in false teaching here. So clearly they're not teaching a false gospel. But I think what they are doing is they're trying to undermine the ministry of Paul. They're trying to somehow discredit what Paul is doing. Maybe they're saying things like this. And we're just speculating at best. But maybe they're saying, listen, if Paul is so great, why is he in prison? If Paul is so great, why hasn't he actually been martyred for his faith? Why would you follow Paul, follow us? Listen, it's hard to know what they're saying, but it's obvious what they're trying to do, given what Paul tells us, is make Paul's life miserable. I think we can all agree that's hard to deal with. I don't know if you've ever had a person in your life that you thought just had an axe to grind with you, and they were doing everything they could to make your life miserable. But if you have, it's not a good place to be. And I can't imagine 
that this was pleasant for Paul, knowing that there were some who were trying to do everything they could to make his life miserable. And yet, listen to what he says in verse 18. Verse 18, he says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Listen, he knows that they are out to get him. He knows that they have false motives. But he says at the end of the day, all that matters is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. And in that, I rejoice. And at this point, it's probably become obvious. The advancement of the gospel is really important to Paul. In fact, it seems like his greatest priority. It's more important to him than people treating him well. It's more important to him than his own freedom. It's more important to him than seemingly any earthly thing. More than anything, he wanted to hear, he wanted people to hear and embrace that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That was his priority. And it's at this point that maybe we need to ask ourselves this question, what is our priority? What is our priority? If you were wrongly thrown in jail, and yet somehow the gospel advanced, would you rejoice? If there were a group of people that were out to get you, and at every step they were trying to make your life miserable, and maybe in some ways succeeding, and yet the gospel advanced despite of that, or maybe because of it, would you rejoice? I think the only way you could rejoice in those situations is if you truly believe that the advancement of the gospel was more important than almost anything else. So here's the obvious question. Is the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ, is that at the top of your priority list? Is the idea of more people hearing this good news about Jesus dying on the cross for sinners, is that something that motivates you? Is that something that you would say, this is what I live for, that the gospel would advance? Or do you have other priorities? And listen, I always know it's much easier to say that your priorities are advancing the gospel when you're sitting in the pews than when you're out living life, right? In reality, what are your priorities? Maybe the real priority, as evidenced by your actions, is money. Or maybe it's advancing your career. Or maybe it's the education of your children or the happiness of your children. Or maybe you're single and your priority is finding a spouse. Or maybe the priority is receiving recognition. Or maybe the priority is being comfortable or finding security and safety. Or maybe it's something else entirely. But for Paul, it's obvious that the priority was the advancement of the gospel. That's the reason why, even though he was wrongfully imprisoned, he was able to rejoice. And even though everyone was out to get him, he was able to rejoice. Why? Because advancing the gospel meant more to him than anything else. I wonder if maybe the reason why sometimes we are so unhappy and why we are so frustrated with life is because we have misplaced priorities. Instead of living for something bigger than ourselves, instead of living for the advancement of the kingdom of God, we've made it about the advancement of our own kingdoms. That always leads to frustration. Listen, the reason why Paul was able to rejoice when seemingly everything in his life was going wrong is because the one thing in his life that really mattered wasn't going wrong. The gospel was advancing. Listen, I don't know many people who would have acted like Paul did. I don't know many people would have said, yeah, this is actually good that I was thrown in prison. But then again, I don't know many people who had priorities like Paul did. Maybe the question for us simply today is this. Will we make the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ a priority in our own lives? Will we decide 
that more than anything else, we want people to hear this message about Jesus. Not because we're being told to, not because Paul did it, but because we love this message. Because it changed us. Because we received eternal life. Because we received the forgiveness of our sins. And we want desperately that other people would hear about that. Will that be a priority? As a church, will we decide together that the priority is going to be hearing or making sure that people hear about Jesus Christ? Will that be a priority? As individuals, will we make that a priority? As a church, will we make that a priority? Will we fight for the advancement of a kingdom that cannot be stopped? Then maybe a follow-up question. Will we do that not just in theory, but in reality? Again, it's always easier to talk about it when we're sitting here. But tomorrow, or even today when we get home, that's when the battle starts. Listen, when I look at Paul's attitude in Philippians 1, 12 through 18, if I'm real honest, one of the first things I think is, that is strange. You know what else I think? I think, I want to have that attitude too. I want to have an attitude where I say, no matter what happens, even if it's false imprisonment, even if it's everyone else throwing me under the bus, all I really want is for the gospel to advance. I want that attitude. I want that for myself. I want that for us as a church. And I'm praying that you would want that attitude also. Yeah, this is weird, but it's gloriously weird, right? Because ultimately, ultimately, this is what living the Christian life looks like. Setting aside everything else for the glory that is found in Jesus Christ. Let us make it our goal to live like Paul. To set aside everything else for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that on a weekly basis we get to gather together and we get to hear your word together. And now the task is that we would live it out together. And so as we go to our care groups this week, as we go to our regular lives, as we go to the retreat next weekend, we're praying that we would think about the verses that we read here in Philippians 1 and that we would be challenged to make the gospel a priority in our own lives. Maybe even today, the challenge is to make the gospel a priority in our families. It's having that conversation with our kids that we've avoided having for too long or being intentional with our spouses in a way that we haven't been intentional for a long time. Or maybe it's when we go to work tomorrow, making sure that we're intentional with the gospel. God, help us. Help us to be people who, above all else, prioritize the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.